So, any questions that uh, you may have? We're kind of nearing the end of our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I don't know about you, I've enjoyed it. I don't know that I've ever <clears throat> done anything, um, this kind of a deep dive into the Sermon on the Mount. And so I've enjoyed spending the time in it. Hopefully it's been uh, beneficial to you. But anything to this point, as we're looking at uh, chapter 7 and verse 12 tonight, what we know as the golden rule. Is there anything in particular that, uh, to this point that troubles you, bothers you, or you don't understand that we might could reach back and, and pick up? Okay, this is the one shot you get. After this, we won't back up again. This is it. Okay, Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Anybody got a different translation? Anybody got something other than the ESV? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. So what's your translation? New King James. New King James. So that's closer to what most of us would remember, that we've memorized at some point in time. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We know that as what? The golden rule, right? The golden rule. <clears throat> I was reading this week about... Um, we have any musicians? Any musicians? You're a musician? You know anything about the harpsichord? Yeah. Do you? Superstition. It's not a superstition of the harpsichord. Oh, does it? So you know how a harpsichord works? Anybody know how the harpsichord... Huh? Does it pluck the string? That's right, that's right. It, it has a hook, and so when you, when you hit the keys, it plucks the string. You know, like if you were using a banjo or something, I guess, and plucking the strings. Uh, the, uh, strings. And so it has that kind of strange sound to it, and that's, that was the precursor to the, uh, to the piano. Before the piano came on the scene, the harpsichord was it. So what they did was they took the harpsichord and they made a, a, a slight change, a slight change in how it worked. And, and it transformed uh, the music and the, the breadth, the richness of it, everything, literally with just a small change. Anybody got an idea what that change was? Yeah, instead of, instead of plucking the string with a hook, that when you hit the key, the hammer hit the key, hit the string, hit it like that. So what it did was it, it enriched the tone and it broadened the, the dynamic nature of uh, being able to make music with a piano. So it, it, it's given us a, a more useful instrument. I don't know, do they, they still sell harpsichords, I guess? Probably expensive. Yeah, it's probably uh, specially made, right? I mean, you couldn't walk into a store and buy one. You could probably buy one of these, um, these computer um, keyboards and you probably have that, that option on it. But um, slight change. Same, same pieces, same everything else, but a, a slight change in the way that it functioned. Plucking the string 
versus a hammer hitting the string, and it changed the whole um, whole sound uh, and capabilities. It enabled this richer, more dynamic sound. Verse 12 is possibly the most renowned teaching offered by Jesus. We all know it. We probably were taught it in school. Uh, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It exists in many places other than in the Bible. In fact, it's been called the topmost peak of social ethics, the Everest, if you will, of ethical teaching. <clears throat> Some noted parallels. Hillel, the Jewish rabbi, wrote this. He said, what is hateful to yourself do to no other. That is the whole law and the rest is commentary. Go and learn. The book of Tobit uh, in 3rd century before Christ said, the hero of the book tells his son, quote, and what thou thyself hatest do to no man. A story in the letter of Aristides of a Jewish scholar, as you wish that no evil should befall you but to be a partaker of all good things, so you should act on the same principle toward your subjects and offenders, and you should mildly admonish the noble and good. And William Barclay goes on to cite similar parallels in the teachings of Confucius, uh, Epictetus, the Stoics, and in the hymns of the faith of Buddhism. But now there's one thing that's different about all of these parallel sayings and that which Jesus gives us. Anybody pick up on that? What? Jesus is in the positive, the other's in the negative. That's right. That's exactly right. All these others take on the negative perspective. Whatever thou hatest, don't do to someone else. Jesus turned it to the positive. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Slight change. The components are still there, just like with the harpsichord and the piano, but a slight change in playing it. And there are no parallels to what Jesus said anywhere. All the others were in the negative. His is the only one that's in the positive. What do you think that means? He gives us the inverted version which changes the scope dramatically. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Due to this slight change, there are no true parallels to Jesus' words. His statement is unique and exquisite. Barclay says it is, it is new teaching and a new view of life and life's obligations. It's a new teaching and a new view of life's obligations. So up to this point, even though the general idea about this saying was in play, Jesus changed it. He picked up on it and changed it. He could have said, like he said to the Pharisees or about the Pharisees and scribes on numerous occasions when he would say, you have heard it said, right? Remember early in this study of the Sermon on the Mount, he would look and he'd say to the audience, you've heard it said. In other words, you've heard your religious leaders say, Blah, 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 blah. But I say unto you, do this. Well, he doesn't say that here. He doesn't express it, but he could have. He could have said, you've heard it said, whatever thou hatest, don't do to any man. But I say unto you, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
So what's the difference other than it's positive and negative? What difference does it make? It kind of expands to everything. It puts the, it puts the responsibility on you. Okay. To, to do first. It's yeah. Not a response. Yeah. I mean, it also it it moves it away. the The negative thing is limited. You know, Sam, you said it expands it. The negative is limited, okay? In other words, the teaching that, that everybody else is giving and saying, look, I hate it. I hate it. When somebody pinches me and twists right there on my arm. So I'm not going to do that to anybody else because I hate that myself. But I can do that. I can limit that, right? Um you know, some of you grew up and you experienced teasing or, you know, riding each other in school and stuff like that, you know, or making fun of somebody. You hated somebody to make fun of you, so you wouldn't do it. You know, your mom said, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. So you could do that and say, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make fun of somebody because I don't want that turning on me and them making fun of me. Okay, so that's what everybody else is teaching. Something you don't like then you don't do it to somebody else. But Jesus is saying, what you do want, what you do desire, do unto others. What do you like? Well, everybody likes to be loved, don't they? Everybody likes to have approval. Everybody likes to be accepted. Everybody likes to be served in some way or fashion. Everybody likes to be successful. So you start taking all the things that we like and that we want, that we aspire to, and he says, do this to others. Instead of worrying about the, thing, the one thing you don't like that you're not going to do to somebody else because you don't want it done to you, take all the things that you do like and go do those to others. And so James is pointing out what it does is it, it puts me after others Sam said, it expands all the implications. I mean, it's, it's positive. You can see this vast blessing if you start thinking about it in those kind of terms. So Jesus said, you've heard it said, limit what you do to others, the, the things that you might hate, don't do to somebody else. I'm saying... Take the things that you wish someone would do for you and do those for others. Positive words. Turns it completely around, doesn't it? Boyce, Montgomery Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce says, he is asking us to see that the way into heaven is either by supplying an inward perfection equal to God's own love and grace and holiness, which no one can do, or else by turning from the demands of the law entirely in order to receive a new life from God, which alone he is capable of doing the things that God requires. So we can do the negative. We can find something in the negative that we can allow ourselves to do. We're not capable of doing this, are we? We're not capable. It's not in us. First of all, we're selfish, right? Why would I want to do, why would I want to do that for King? You know, 
King had never done that to me or for me. What am I going to get out of the deal? That's the way we think, right? Yeah, sure. That's the way we think. What am I going to get first? So it's not in me to put others before me. The only way I can do that is through the power of Christ in me, through his spirit reigning in me and operating in me. He doesn't say what the result's going to be either. No. He just says do this. It's an imperative. It's a command. Go do it. And he doesn't promise us tit for tat. If you do this, then you'll get, you'll get more than you bargained for. True. You know, it's not health, wealth, and wisdom gospel, is it? If you do this, if you sow this seed, boy, it's going to come back a hundredfold on you. It's not what he says. This is who kingdom people are. Kingdom people. It's me after others, expanding the implications, doing for others, doing good for others, serving others, no matter what no matter what the results are, the consequences not are for me. Not ex it's unconditional, right? Unconditional. It's hard for a person. <clears throat> what happened here? A person can only do what Jesus says if his mind is entirely off himself. He, his thinking must be at all moments on the needs, the cares, the loves, the joys, the hopes, and dreams of other people. Now, you might even find it you might even be able to do this to a certain degree within the context of your own family, right? I mean, that's about as deep and intimate a love as you have for the people inside your family. We can put ourselves after others in that circumstance, but he doesn't qualify it that way, does he? He just says others. Do unto others. You thought when we got through with the Beatitudes, we were home free, right? <laughs> we thought when we got through that, we were home. Well, basically what he's doing here is he's summarizing his whole teaching here in this one verse. It's a partial summary of not only what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, but what the whole law points toward. This is the, this is the, the focus of the whole law. This is what he wants instilled in us. This is what it means to be kingdom people. The law, God gave the law to show us what it means to be His people. And we turned it into, we turned it into, you know, do's and don'ts. You know, the minimum. We're thinking again in the minimum. What do I minimally have to do here? Instead of understanding that He was, he was opening this expansion and saying, do this because this is who I am. Do this putting yourself behind others. Because that's what I've done for you. So Jesus is actually outlining the true nature of morality. The major effect the golden rule is intended to have on human goodness is to condemn it. Human goodness simply cannot rise high enough to satisfy, satisfy Jesus' instruction. We can substitute... A good old British expression here. Instead of the golden rule, we could call this the golden straight edge. 
This verse is God's straight edge by which man may know morally how morally crooked he really is. You know, if I had if I had you come up here and draw lines just like I drew that line, most of you could say, you know, I can draw a straight line and and you might it might look straight until we lay a straight edge down beside it, right? It's like the old, you know, you got on a white sweater tonight. If you had a white shirt, cotton shirt, and you think it's white until it snows, right? And you see it besides snow, which is a purer version of white than what we have in our cloth. And we see that it's, it's kind of dingy. It's not really as white as we thought. This is not quite as straight as it first looks like when you lay a straight edge down beside it. You start seeing all the imperfections. And this is what the law does for us. This is what uh, the ethical teaching that Jesus gives us, what he's telling us here in, in this kingdom standard for his people. We can't do it in and of ourselves. We can't do it. Only through his power. This is the whole point for the law. This golden rule is a partial summary. Man's goodness, if you compare, usually what we do as human beings is we compare ourselves to others, don't we? Yes. We do. We compare ourselves to other, others. Well, you know, I read my Bible six times this week, you know, six days this week. And that's probably more than King read his. I'm sorry, I'm not picking on King anymore. That's more than Charles read his this week. Charles maybe only read his four. So in my thinking, in most of our thinking, I'm more spiritual than Charles, right? I'm closer to God than Charles. I'm more committed than Charles. That's the way we think as human beings. And Phil's saying, well, I read mine seven times. What kind of pastor are you? you know? These are the thoughts that enter our heads because we're comparing ourselves to each other. But what God has always said to us from His Word and what Jesus is saying here is that our comparison is not with each other. Our comparison is with Him. Our comparison is with the pure righteousness of God Himself. And we all come up short there. We all come up and show imperfections. How far, how far away from perfection is being 98% perfect? It's a long way. It's, it's substantive, right? It's enough to condemn us to hell, the Bible tells us. God gives us a test to examine ourselves in that. You know, the Ten Commandments. We'll take those Ten Commandments and think about them for a minute. What's, uh, you got one that says, uh, Thou shalt not lie. Right? Mm-hmm. You ever told a lie? Yeah. Who said no? We said yes. We didn't say no. We said yes. I heard Adrian Rogers tell a story, and I've probably shared this before, about being pulled over by a police officer when he was young and on his way to seminary. And he said, I knew that my car had a headlight that was out. And the policeman pulled me over and walked up to the car and said, did you know you've got a headlight that's, that's broken? And he said, I got a headlight that's broken? And he said, I lied without lying. Because I knew in my heart 
But I implied I didn't know. What? You're telling me something I don't know because I didn't want a ticket. That's how subtle it is, right? So how many of us can say we've never told a lie? Anybody? Anybody taking that one? You wanted to raise your hand. Okay. All right, so all of us, all of us have told lies. What does that make you? A liar. A liar. I don't like that word, do we? Have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? You're going to admit that here in front of a God and everybody? Yeah. Okay. We've all taken stuff that didn't belong to us, whether it was a piece of chewing gum or a pencil or when you worked at a corporate office, you know, you took something from there, a, a pen, you know, that the company bought and you took it home, you know, put it by the phone where you could take messages and stuff. You say, well, that's kind of, that's kind of, isn't that taking something that doesn't belong to us? What about the company gives you an hour for lunch and you squeeze in an hour and 10 minutes one day? What about that 10 minutes that, you know, belongs to the company? Did you give that back? Did you have it deducted from your pay, you know? We don't think that way, do we? But that's the technical meaning of what it means to not steal, to not take something that belongs to someone else. What about uh, honoring parents? Did you honor your parents every day, every way, all the time? Yes, mother. Yes, daddy. Take out the trash. I'm on it. I'm on it. No. You know, you could be like me and say, I will in a minute. I got, I got one, I got one spanking from my dad in my whole life because he traveled and so he had kind of had this rule with my mom this agreement he said i work away all week i'm not coming home and being the disciplinarian so you're going to have to handle that and so you know she gave me one about every day but i got one spanking from him and it was because i was at my great-grandmother's house on the porch i'm probably about four years old and she from in the house said Jerry come here and I said in a minute and the next thing I knew I had stripes welling up on my legs from getting thrashed with a belt now that's child abuse today right <laughs> what else lust looking at someone lustfully looking at someone to covet what they have Someone drives in in a brand new car, and you go, boy, wish I had a new car. Whoop! Coveting. Right? That's what it means to want what someone else has. Rather than what Jesus would say is that we should celebrate what they have. Great. If you could feel for them what you would feel for yourself in that same situation, you wouldn't be coveting. But who of us does? all the time. You might be able to do that occasionally, but most of the time you can't help it, can you? It just rises up in you. So I'm not asking for hands, but I'm guessing that all of us are guilty of all these things, right? So who are we? We're coveting, lying, stealing, thieving, lusting bunch of people when we're compared to the law. Compared to each other, we're pretty good people. But compared to the law, 
we got a rap sheet that long, right? More than that. More than that. The standard is righteousness, and we're not. So we can't do these things in our own power, our own strength. It's only with the change that Christ brings to bear upon us where we have imputed to us His righteousness, and then He empowers us to live ethically according to what He's given us. We're still going to fail this side of heaven, this side of being fully, fully sanctified, but... He balances the sheet for us before God and we're accepted based upon what He has done, not what we can do. So the Sermon on the Mount was given to drive us to Christ, just like the law in the Old Testament was set to drive us, drive us to Christ, to make us see our failing. It also sets forth the standard of morality to which God is leading His people. He's pushing us towards something. It's not just to show us how far we come short, but it's also showing us the steps we need to be taking in our relationship with Him. Now, we, we Christians, it's a hard thing because we don't want to get caught on that, in that works theology, do we? We don't want to get caught up in trying to perform in order to receive acceptance. But it's not that. We are to act differently from the world. We're to act according to the, to the picture that Jesus has laid out here because we have a relationship with it's about living up to the family name now. It's not trying to persuade the Father to give us something because we're good people. But we're trying to be good because our good Father has redeemed us and saved us from the miserable state we were in. That makes sense? Okay, Barclay again said, To obey this commandment, and he's referring to the golden rule, a man must become a new man with a new center to his life. He can't do it in and of himself. The gospel is not only to save us. The gospel is not only to save us from God's wrath and to give us heaven. The gospel is to make us new people that God has redeemed. The gospel is to make us like Christ to become as He is. We can't do it through our power but through His. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you're still reading through uh, his book, studies on the Sermon on the Mount, said the law was not meant to be praised, it was meant to be practiced. Our Lord did not preach the Sermon on the Mount in order that you and I might comment upon it, but in order that we might carry it out. So how does this happen through Christ's power? When we talk about that, what does that mean? When we say, you can't do it, you can only live this way. You can only satisfy. You can only become a truly kingdom person through the presence and the power of God's Spirit working in and through you. Okay, that sounds good. That's good theology. And you can go out and speak that and you'll sound really good doing it, like you really know your stuff. But I'm more interested in practically how does this work. I'm, I'm good with the theology. I'm good for, with the philo philosophy of it. But I want you to tell me how practically this can make a difference in the way I live my life. You can be um, kind to those that, that hurt you. Okay, but we just said, okay, Charles, that's right. But we just said, 
Charles, it's not in me to do that. When somebody hurts me, you know what I want to do? I want to hurt them back. So, in order to, and if I do that, Jesus is saying I'm not being a kingdom person. So, how do I practically do that? How can I, how can I be sure that I'm going to be able to give kindness to somebody that gives me unkindness? Somebody hurts me, how can I go about... Anybody in here wired differently than me? I mean, if Bill does something hurtful to me, in spite of everything in me, I, you know, I'm every time I see Bill, I'm thinking, boy, I want you to get yours. I want you to get yours. I may have to suppress taking action, but in my heart of hearts, I want him to get his. And in fact, sometime later, Bill comes up on something and he gets hurt. I'm a little, I'm a little bit joyful, right? I'm a little bit glad. I'm not going to tell anybody, but am I alone in this? Are y'all y'all light years beyond me in this? So how do I do that? How do I practice that? How do I walk in that the power of Christ and and His Spirit when these things happen, and I want to act one way, but I know I should be doing something different. How can I actually do that? Grace. Grace? Okay. You can't do it yourself. You can't. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, praying, rehearsing what I've been given, these are, these are good. So, To rehearse my the grace that's mine in Christ. I can pray. God give me. We talked last week. Was it last week? You have not because you asked not? Or was it two weeks ago? That's two weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it's in Acts chapter 4. So hang out with the Lord and those things will matter. So, so I'm disciplining myself. Discipling. Personal discipling, right? That's the way I can discipline myself. But you, you just hit on it right there. What have I got to do? I've I got to soak and marinate in the Word of God, do I not? If you look in look in Ephesians chapter 6. Let me show you something. I know you know this. I'm just going to remind you of it because I say Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, <clears throat> Paul's writing wrapping up this letter to the Ephesians. He he's talking about this armor that we have this armor that we wear. It's, it's uh, using armor metaphorically for us, but it's got deep spiritual significance for us. Chapter uh, 6, verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. What's that mean? It's pretty much like kind of yeah, I need to be abiding in Him. I need to be 
leaning into him, we, we use that expression, leaning in and on him and appreciating his strength, yeah. right? The Amplified says, in conclusion, be strong in the Lord. Draw your strength from him and be empowered through your union with him and in the power of his boundless mind. Right. Listen, here, here's a, a very practical illustration. You watch a, uh, you, you watch a ball game on TV, guy gets hurt. Twist, twist his leg, his ankle, maybe breaks his leg, you know? Now, sometimes they bring the, the, the gurney out there and put him on that and wheel him off, but, you know, sometimes they bring a couple of his teammates out there and they put one on either side and put his arms around their shoulders and what? They carry him off. He doesn't put any weight on his leg. He's leaning on them and trusting on them. He's leaning into their strength. And they carry him off and put him in a place where the doctors and trainers can attend to him. That's kind of the picture that Paul's given us here. So, put, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the temptations, the imperfections of the flesh, the things that, that we want to do naturally that don't, that don't reflect who we are supernaturally, spiritually in Christ any longer. For we do not wrestle, we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fast fastened on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So, belt of truth. My dad taught me when uh, playing football as a young guy and I missed a tackle or something and he, he got me, you know, the coach didn't diagnose it. My dad had played defensive back and he said, look, when you're getting ready to tackle a guy, you put your eyes on his belt buckle because wherever that belt buckle goes, that's where he's going. He can throw his legs, shake his legs or hands or bob his head and fake you out. But he can't do that with his waistline with his belt buckle wherever that belt buckle is pointed that's where he's going and so you just meet that belt buckle and you'll be fine made all the difference in the world he's saying here we put on the belt of truth we're walking in truth that's the direction of our lives the breastplate of righteousness wanting what is right what pleases the lord having that desire this is the place the seat of our soul our emotions our desires our wants having that under the, the breastplate of His righteousness. The shoes, readiness given by the gospel of peace, ready to go forth in service as ambassadors for God in all that we do. Always ready, Peter said, to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Right? Then, he says, take up the shield of faith. You know, a shield in these days was often made out of wood, and, and they would soak those things in water. So they were waterlogged. So if you're firing flaming arrows at me, 
you can hide behind that shield and even if it you know drove into the wood the water the wood it just put it out right that's the picture that he's painting here when satan's firing those shooting those fiery darts at us it's the shield of faith faith in what believing in god believing in the providence of god believing in the protection of god holding dear to the promises of god so that those things, the doubts, the fears, the concerns, the, the worries, those things just die in that, in that shield of faith. The helmet of salvation that means no matter how bad it gets, it can never be as bad as it once was because I am in Christ. I am redeemed. I am secure. I am saved. Even if I suffer and die in this world, as Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain, to be in Christ's presence, right? And then the last one, the sword of the Spirit. Now, this is the one I really want you to focus on. Because all of these others are defensive pieces of armor. The warrior wears these. They're all defensive in their orientation. But the sword of the Spirit is the offensive weapon, right? This is where you do battle. Everything else protects you. The sword of the Spirit is offensive. And he says the sword of the Spirit is what? It is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. This is why it's so important. We, when you treat it just as a, any other book, then that's all you've got. But when you understand the supernatural nature of it, that it is the Word of God, and the Word of God in us empowers us for the things that we face walking through this life. And so this is a practical way that we prepare ourselves for when someone hurts me, how can I be back? How can I demonstrate kindness to them? It's not within me to do it. Jerry wants to get even. Jerry wants to get ahead. Jerry wants to inflict as much pain and retaliation as he can possibly do. But when I'm walking with the Lord day by day, prayer, discipling myself, rehearsing the grace that God has instilled in me, and I am soaking in the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit becomes my offensive weapon, and I realize that I shouldn't, I shouldn't let any unwholesome word proceed from me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, right? That I focus on, uh, that I'm giving thanks in all things, for this is Christ's will for me, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. That I should pray at all times. These are practical things that enable me to live out the ethic that Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. I can't do it on my own. I can't do it in my own strength. Jesus said, did he not? Matthew chapter 4, he's been fasting 40 days. He's in the wilderness and he faces the, this, this great temptation from Satan. And what was his first response to Satan's temptation? You know, he said, you're hungry. You're hungry. Here, turn these rocks into bread. And Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but what? By every word that comes out of the mouth of God. By every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4. That's pretty, that's pretty clear, isn't it? He could have said, Man does not live by bread alone, but he needs some, you know, he needs some greens and he needs some 
beans and he needs, you know, some dessert. That's not what he said. He said it's not by bread. It's not the sustenance that we see, the physical sustenance of life that he lives by, but by the word of God, the word that comes out of the, the mouth of God. This is how he lives. This is how he lives like a kingdom person. And he showed us there in that temptation how he faced those things through the word, through the spirit of God. Even at such a weak moment as having gone through 40 days of fasting, being alone. Okay, I don't know how we got there. We went there, and hopefully it was worthwhile. Um, so, let me just share this with you. C.S. Lewis, from Mere Christianity, wrote this. I want to make sure that what we just said is going to fit here. Maybe it won't. When I was a child, I often had a toothache, he writes, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something that would deaden the pain for that night and let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not till the pain became, became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could, I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling around with all sorts of other teeth which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took an L. Now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentist. If you give him an inch, he will take, he will take an L. That is why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are here for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this job through. I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you. As he said, he was well pleased with me. In Philippians 1.6, Paul wrote, he said, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will, what? Finish it. That he'll finish it. This is what we sign up for. We're to surrender to Christ, letting God make us, remake us, if you will, into His image, to restore the Imago Dei, His image in us. He created us to be image bearers, and sin has marred that, distorted that, and He's in the process of remaking it. <clears throat> so if you let Him, He will turn you into the kind of being who really will think of others first. <clears throat> Excuse me. This verse officially concludes the major part of the Sermon on the Mount. The rest of the chapter is kind of a significant postscript that occurs. The golden rule appropriately summarizes all that has gone before it. If you go back, we're going to go back and read chapters 5 and 6 
and the first part of 7. Now, in light of verse 12 in chapter 7, you see how it, it becomes the exclamation point on this. <coughs> Questions? I was told, Bob, you'd have 10 minutes worth of questions. You don't have any? Not for tonight. <laughs>